0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Angel with Michael Conniff, I'm your host. Uh, we are a companion podcast to The Accelerator, available on all the major platforms, Audible, Amazon, Apple, uh, also those that do not begin with A, all the major uh, Audible, or I should say, um, podcast plat- platforms, but also Spotify and YouTube with both audio and video, also, make sure you're signed up and subscribed to our Substack newsletter, coniffc onnif Uh That way you get everything sent directly to your email box. We've got uh, close to 8,000 people getting it that way. So love that as well. And uh, remember to rank us, like us, subscribe to us, uh, all of the above if possible. So today I want to welcome to our podcast uh, Doug Hoarth. Um, welcome, Doug. Did I say your
1: name right? Uh, Howarth is the preferred Howarth, pronunciation. I'm sorry. Yes.
0: Um, you know, I used to be a professional, so I used to get names right, but <laughs> but but I'm obviously slipping. Uh, Doug Howarth is um, the author of Hypernomics, and he is a person who has done what is known as, I think it's known as parametric modeling for yes. many many years, including 31 years plus at Lockheed. Um, He has a new book by the name of Hypernomics. Um, So we're going to find out about Hypernomics, and we are going to apply it to the angel world, the accelerator world, the startup world. So, so Doug. um, uh, first of all, thanks for doing this. It's nice to have you. we've been, we've tried to arrange this for a long time, and it's uh, it's a good feeling to see it actually happening. So let me ask you this um, in in layman's terms, let's start by just describing what hypernomics is because it's not it's a I don't want to say it's complex, but it's not the it's not the simplest concept either. So what is hypernomics? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it, you're right, Michael, It's it's um, it's got a simple backbone, but it ends up being a little complicated when you put it together. It takes it takes things you know and re- rearranges them into views that you have never seen before, but you can use. So for example, when it comes to electric cars, for example, you would know that if I add more horsepower, I'm gonna pay more for that car. And if I add more range, I'm going to pay more for the car. And so as the price goes up, the value of the car goes up. Now that's happening on what we call the value side, which we always code in green. But as the value goes up, as the price goes up, as the price goes up, the number that the world can afford falls, which is basically as price goes up, the quantity sold goes down. And that's a demand function. And so what hypernomics observes, maybe for the first time, at least I think it is the first time because we have a patent on it is that you can create a system in which everything starts at a, at a, zero point and goes outward from that. So the, the value goes off as you add positive features and value, the value goes up. And as you go off the other direction, as you, uh, check the quantity versus the price as the price is, if the quantity is very low and the price is high, then as the price falls, you're going to sell more. And so it all starts at a common zero point, much like being at the South Pole. The South Pole, if you were sitting at the stepping on the exact South Pole and you went in one direction, you'd be entering Australian space. Australia has a claim on the South Pole. And opposed from that is a claim that Argentina has. So as you're going into positive Australia space, you're not going into negative Argentina space and vice versa. And that turns out to be pretty useful information. So that creates the ability for us to make a four-dimensional system. Okay, so how is it different? Well, it's different in that it it starts with four dimensions. Most economic systems right now start with two dimensions, which is they, they have a horizontal quantity axis, typically, and a vertical price axis.
0: And your typical business chart. Yeah. Right.
1: Your typical business chart. And so we agree that there's a a, a downward <coughs> sloping supply curve, which is to say downward from a low quantity and a high price to a higher quantity and a low price. There's a downward sloping demand curve. And classic economists would say there's an upward sloping supply curve that intersects that at one point. And that's true for something like iron ore. If you were to plot the iron ore. Mines that are out there and start to plot their costs and then their 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 profit had to be a little bit over the cost You'd find that they actually form an upward sloping supply curve and there might only be one price in the market, but Iron ore goes into back into cars and so cars don't have just one price in the market. There's Dozens or hundreds and thousands of different price points for automobiles and so if you're interested i could actually show you how that applies yeah, to yeah. uh please do because we want to see the okay. four
0: dimensions and it's hard to imagine it without seeing it
1: right 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 so, so if this
0: you're, i'm gonna have to i'm gonna actually let you describe it um yeah. because remember we are a podcast so people not everybody's going to be able to see this so what are you holding up
1: well i'm holding up a, a 4d model it's a 4d model i built on we had built on a 3d printer that consists of a series of 2d planes and i'm holding in one hand so it's uh (laughs) that's the way we go about it and so what i'm showing you the the audience here for those of you had the visual and then that you that were trying on audio trying to imagine this i'm showing a series of price and quantity points for the electric car market in 2013 so in 2013 tesla had just released the the tesla model s and so Uh, There are a couple of points where there's just a few sales. um, In this case, uh, 7,000 sales. And we got a pair of price points. One's higher and one's lower. That represents the different horsepower these two vehicles had. And then if you go down a lot, a pretty large quantity of of vehicles being sold at a lower price. And this is the Nissan LEAF. And so Mm -hmm. these price points here, Form what we call a demand frontier. This was where the market was limited, and how much it could sell. In 2013, there was a certain amount of money that people had allocated to to buy things, and it formed this outer boundary. And that, well, so let, this.
0: Let me ask this, just because you're, you're yes. holding up sort of a chart, and why, what does this, and what does hypernomics do that? an Excel spreadsheet wouldn't or that a a more typical way of looking at this wouldn't accomplish.
1: Well, that's great, That's great, Michael. Thank you. You're actually going right into the next bit. So the other bit, so the question you would ask yourself then is what's holding up these price points? Now, what you already know, and this is the, the important point, is that we already agreed that we knew that prices would go up if we added more range to a car and prices would go up we added more horsepower to a car. So, if you look at this other side over here, the green, or what we call value space here, what we're looking at here is we've got the value in terms of the uh, horsepower in one direction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the value in terms of the range in another direction. And what we've done is we've combined both of those effects and found this this plane that represents the the best fit for the, that data. And so each one of these points, these yellow points, represents the points that we saw on the other side there for, for the respect to demand.
0: Okay, so let's so this, keep, I was just gonna say, let's keep this in the context of Tesla. So, yes. uh, and what you're showing is a, kind of a three, four dimensions of this, including kind of a, um, a plane uh, uh, with data points on the plane. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, if, if I could describe it that way. So you're Tesla and you look at this in 2013, what do you see? What do well, you
1: see do? that the, what, the market's what, got-
0: That you might, forgive me, but what do you see that you might not have seen otherwise?
1: <laughs> oh, great, well, that, the answer is, there's a bunch of things that you can see here, Michael. Thank you. One is that the points that are below the surface may be under price. This is price, remember, this is the vertical axis here. So if you're below the surface, There may be, you may be underpriced or there may be other features that are important to the buyers. And if you're over this this plane here, you may be overpriced or there may be other features that the market is considering. The other thing that you can see here is this mark, this creates a map. If you look at it from the top down, you'll see that there's a little bit of coverage here and here, but there's a big open space in the middle of this market. And very interestingly and very usefully for Tesla, what they did is intuitively, I think, I don't think they drew this, they knew that they needed to put other vehicles into this open space. So that's where the Tesla Model 3 and the, and the Model Y ended up, is they, they ended up in this, this open space mm-hmm. here and, and used these relationships to their own advantage to create a product that, in, in our vernacular, in the market's vernacular, we they created a product that the market... Wants demonstrated by their their demand wants doesn't have and doesn't have is is demonstrated by these open spaces and can't afford so it's inside this demand limit and so that's what this this does for is it lets people create a map for themselves so if they're already building a product they can figure out if they're underpriced or overpriced and what would happen if they changed those prices and if they if they're thinking of buying a product it tells you what the best deals are in the market. And if you're entering the market, it tells you the best places to enter the market
0: uh-huh and, and tell me um uh, this discipline of parametrics, which uh, hypernomics is your book is based on yes what what is parametric how would you fill fill in the blank Parametrics is the study of blank of what
1: it, It's the study of um, well typically in 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 modern Usage is it's the, the study of the cost and the schedule and the risk of a various project. so parametric analysis tri- typically addresses those elements. but what we've discovered is that you can get the cost perfect, perfectly analyzed and you get your schedule perfectly analyzed. but if you mis- if you don't understand what the demand and the value is, your whole thing can blow apart. So a case in point there would be Many of your listeners know probably of the DeLorean automobile that came out in the '80s. If they've
0: seen the movie, for those who
1: don't, John DeLorean.
0: Yeah, if they've seen the movie Back to the Future, they've seen the they've seen the car. Yeah,
1: right. If you've seen Back to the Future, you've seen the DeLorean automobile, and that was a very slick-looking automobile. And and John DeLorean bet really heavily that people would really go for the style of this vehicle. And there's a lot to be said for adding style to the vehicle. And he got some buyers for that. But he priced this vehicle at $25,000 in 1983, and he had 130 horsepower. Now, other cars that would have been relatively, you know, satisfying that horsepower requirement would have had roughly double the horsepower. So he was undercutting the horsepower that the, the buyers wanted by about half. And so he did two two things wrong was he messed up, he, he didn't correctly estimate the value of his product, and then he, he built many more than the market would support. He didn't do the demand analysis, which he could have done from the year before, and he built so many that he ended up holding a bunch in, in inventory, and he didn't sell them, and, and the company went bankrupt.
0: But let me ask you, let me throw a little monkey wrench in here, Doug. Um, mm-hmm. So... So uh, we're, t- we're talking about cars and we're talking about Tesla and we're talking about DeLorean. But mm-hmm. uh, in your analysis of um, of uh, Elon Musk and Tesla in particular in the year 2013, yes. uh, you haven't mentioned the word electric or the words electric car. So the calculations, the four dimensional calculations and certainly Elon Musk calculations. I'm just reading the book by Walter Isaacson. So this is all fresh in my mind um yeah he he you know he was they were they were it was electric cars for a reason right that was a huge motivation and a use huge, huge factor so how would how would this four dimensional model of hypernomics um account for uh the electric car in this equation
1: you mean when you when it hadn't been built before or
0: yeah so so for yeah it, it i mean there' had been a few but really it hadn't been built before and um when you, when you look at the demand, um, it's very hard to gauge the demand for something that doesn't exist, right? So you might have projections, you might have some, some data points, but, but basically, he was building, it's sort of like the iPhone, right? Or I, I, I got a better example from, from my background. When I, I knew somebody once who worked for um, HBO doing the, the first round of market research on HBO. Mm-hmm and um his name was Don Fleck. I knew him a long time ago and he said uh, we asked everybody would you pay for uncut movies. That was the market research question. Guess what everybody said? I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> because I get movies on television now with commercials and that's fine. That's all I need and the rest is history, right? right? So so the point being that in a in a model like this it's you're only good as your assumptions and your data I would assume so so in, in in your analysis of it you haven't mentioned the electric car but wouldn't that have wouldn't it be very hard wouldn't that be important in terms of demand and, and yet very difficult to gauge because it didn't exist
1: in 2020? Well, interestingly yeah interestingly something can have a different product form and still have the same demand curve and it works out which we've studied this anticipated in a question much strike you've just given me we've Plotted where the maximum price quantity points are for the the cars that are most popular in the electric car market and the internal combustion engine market. And it turns out that they both abide by the same demand frontier. You're just swapping out. So it doesn't matter. So you're
0: saying even in 2013, when there were no electric cars. Right. I, I guess back then you would assume that it would have the same demand curve, right? It would have to be an assumption, right? Because it hadn't happened yet. Well,
1: yeah, back, back then it would be an assumption. Now, very interestingly, back to your other point, it works out that if you take spy satellites, military satellites, and then unmanned, air, unmanned drones that we have, now those are all different product forms. The spy satellite has this huge, can have a very very large um, uh, orbit to it. And then military satellites typically are in low Earth orbit. And then, of course, unmanned air vehicles fly. They all abide by the same demand frontier. And in fact, they all abide by the same value responses that that people want. So basically, when you're buying a, a drone or a satellite, you're paying for how high it goes up in the air, how long it's up in the air, how fast it goes, and what payload it carries. And it turns out that those four variables apply to everything that's in that market. Now, back to your other question, though, when it comes to electric cars, there's a premium that people will pay to have something that's electric because it's cleaner. And no, we couldn't, we didn't have it for cars back then. But what we did have is we had people buying electric lawnmowers early on. And you could have seen what the, 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 the step function would have been from an electric lawnmower that has a half horsepower from, to a gas uh, uh, lawnmower that had the same amount of horsepower. Mm-hmm. So there would be a little a step, a bump that people would be willing to pay for that. And you could hypothesize that that transformation, that that difference, would apply going forward. And you could take several other types of vehicles, if you could find them, and compare the what the gas versus the electric was, and then predict what the difference would be Going forward. So, we've done that kind of analysis for some other products too.
0: So, so, the output would be better analysis, more accurate analysis, better prediction of what was going to happen. So, t- yes. t- give us some examples of how hypernomics has been used in the real world.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I, <clears throat> I found the, I, this business jet that I've been tracking for a number of years mm-hmm. up in the Reno area. It's called Ariane, where they're going to build something called the Ariane AS2. And they posted their development cost, and I did some analysis based on my history that suggested their development cost was pretty good.
0: You were at Lockheed for 31 years, so that's quite a history.
1: Yeah, so I, I knew a little bit about how that worked, and I sure. applied that and said, hey, that looks pretty good. And then I said, well, what's the value of the thing? And so I t- took a look at the speed and the number of people they carried and they wanted to charge 120 million. And by some measures that the um the plant was worth 160 million. So they got that right. So then I said, well what about demand? So um for those of you listening that may have heard this guy sing before, there was a guy named Meatloaf, Mr. Loaf to you. Meatloaf had this song entitled Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. So they already got the the value, which is what the price point is and the cost right. What about demand? They've already got two of the three. Is that good enough? Well, it turned out that there was a demand frontier that they hadn't studied. And they were projecting they were going to sell three hundred and ten in 10 years. And my analysis said when they started out, they could sell 47. So when they launched, they launched with 20 orders. Five years later, they still had the 20 orders. Hmm. Now, the, the frontier had moved a little bit in their favor, but not much. And so I said that their vehicle is worth every penny. You know, It was worth 160 million, but there weren't enough pennies in the world to buy it. So I got this angry response from them and the whole program went under.
0: Define what a demand or explain, um, uh, give us a definition of a demand frontier.
1: A demand frontier is a self-organizing feature of markets in which people depict the, the maximum amount they're going to buy based on the price and the maximum amount of, that they're, gonna, they're going to absorb based on the quantity. There are two types. This is what we call an upper demand frontier relative to price and an outer demand frontier relative to quantity. There's a saturation point and there's a price limit. They start to form these price limits. And over time, they become what's known in the trade as statistically significant. And trying to exceed them is done at your own risk. And that's what we've seen happen more than a few times.
0: Yeah. So, so, so Doug, uh, we, my, my, um, corner of the, of the world is, uh, accelerators, um, primarily accelerators and, you know, angels and, and Mm -hmm. investors. So as I hear you talk, what I, what I'm thinking to myself is, okay, you see over and over, um, in the startup world in particular people trying to figure out their business model. What, what can we charge for this? What will people pay for this? Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, I don't know if you've worked directly with startups, but some of these things um, seem seem applicable because Mm -hmm. a lot of times um, they will get the demand wrong. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they will get the, let's see. um, Uh, Uh, the timeline wrong of how fast something's going to happen. Sometimes they get the technology wrong, but what seems to be really relevant uh, to what you're saying is that they have to, they have to predict those things. Yes. So, and so, um, and also often predict them for products that don't really exist elsewhere. You know, they might be Mm -hmm. similar products, but they really don't exist. So what would your advice be to the typical watcher listener of this of this of my programs in terms of what can they how should they think of this they may not read the book but there's some principles here what what would your advice be if there's if if you had a takeaway for them what would it be
1: Yeah uh, Michael I I would tell them that um basically people buy classes of of features is what we call them. so what goes into a product is a is a feature. So a feature of a car is the range or a feature of your computer would instead of being range would be dura- how long it can operate.
0: Well, that's a good or, example, actually, because range is is only relevant for electric cars because uh, carbon, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more traditional cars have no, have unlimited range because there are unlimited gas stations, right? So that's yeah, effectively,
1: yes, sure. Right. New,
0: new data point. That's very important. Yeah.
1: Right. And so, um, Take for example, people often try to throw a curveball at me and say, "Well, what about the cell phone? How would you have predicted the cell phone back in the day?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go to Europe and you cruise down the Rhine, you'll and you pull off at a castle, you'll see you'll be at the castle and you look around, and you see the architecture, and then you see a little tiny turret a mile away and another one that's the, another mile away, and they're the same identical construction types. And so you you surmise that they're part of the same group. You ask are your guide is, "Oh yeah, those are warning towers that those people are putting up." Well, what is a warning tower except a very expensive communication device? So you could take that 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 cost data, oh, then you could take the-
0: That's not always the case. Don't forget the Maginot Line in World War II, World War One. Right. Where, sure. Where it was you know def- a defense system that proved to be obsolete, which is
1: I guess. Well, yeah, that's true too. To yes, right? thanks, Mike. That yeah, is yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. But, you're, but you're, I mean, again, on the, the, the Great Wall of China, back to your no. point, it's both a defense line and they also had a communication system to warn people that were, people were coming. <clears throat> so you, you had some data, cost data there that said, what did people pay to get a certain amount of distance in there? And then mm. enter World War II, well, walkie talkies came around and they had a certain mass to them and they had a certain range and they had a certain amount of time that they could operate. And you could have collected that data. And then as World War II ended, you went into Korea. There were some more of those kinds of walkie-talkies. At about the t- that time, you can see it in some old movies from the 40s and 50s. Somebody invented the first car phone. Actually threw a phone into a car and it had all this elaborate gear. But some, pe- some wealthy person paid for it. And then, of course, the car, the, the, the car phones got smaller and smaller. And then eventually it went to cell phones. Well, you could track all that data. Mm-hmm. And figure out what the demand of that would be, and then what the value of that would be from the size of the device and how long it lasted, and items like that. you could do that uh, pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Let, You'd be making me, a projection for sure, but it you would have some data to back it up
0: let me um, let me ask you a question about that so mm-hmm. I see the logic of that, but also that progression to the phone we have today, the smartphone, the iPhone, for example an Android model, um, that's no longer just a phone. I mean, that's so no, that's much more sure. than a phone, right? right? So it's really a supercomputer by, you know, by by earlier standards. So how do you account for that? How do you account for the fact that it's not really what it started out to be anymore? In fact, a lot of people never talk on it. They just text on it.
1: <laughs> so, that's true too. Yes. Well, I mean, you could you could take the functionality of the computer you could start to, if you wanted to try to figure out what the computing value of the cell phone would be, you'd say, well, what are people paying for laptops? And you'd see that people are paying a certain amount for laptops, and if you can compress it, well, the people have to pay a premium to have it compressed. So if your phone, you know, eventually amounts to a laptop without a huge keyboard, it, you can kind of compress that data and push it in there. So very interestingly, back to your point, the the cell phones before the Before the first smartphone before, say a Blackberry, were relatively inexpensive, and now you get a cell phone. I mean I got this one here uh, cost me close to a grand there There are ones now that cost two grand, which are quite a bit more expensive than a TV set or a computer. So what you're paying for is you're paying for that compressibility that portability, and we've been we've been maybe tracking the portability of these communication systems from the Great Wall of China. To the walkie-talkie, to the improved walkie-talkie, to the uh, car phone, to what we this first cell phones. So you could kind of see what the compressibility has been for just the communication device, and you can see the comp- the compressibility of the the computers too. If you track that over time, and you yeah, can no, maybe then, intersect them.
0: It's fascinating. So we're we're just about out of time, but if okay. if you had to. Um, give one single singular, singular or single piece of advice to uh, an entrepreneur uh, or even an angel or even an investor about, mm-hmm. about hypernomics, what would it be? What should they, what, what should they remember
1: about They this? should remember this, this simple phrase that we have for ourselves. Find out what the, your customers want, don't have, and can afford. Mm-hmm. If you do that, you're going to avoid the competition, and not price yourself out of the market. So avoid the competition, give, them, give people something they don't have. Don't, don't park your, your product right hard against somebody else that you know is doing great. Get some economic, as we say, economic distancing from them and create your own, th- create your own product and, and put your own stamp on it.
0: It reminds me, I was watching a uh, documentary this week of uh, David Foster, who's a famous music producer. And he
1: mm-hmm. actually
0: saw the artist uh, Michael Buble, who's now famous, but he mm-hmm. saw him sing at a wedding in Canada. <laughs> when nobody <had> <laughs> him. And he immediately said, um, the first thing he said to Michael Buble was, you're in your own lane. There's nobody in your <laughs> lane. And his lane was like a young, good looking guy singing Sinatra, Tony Bennett, uh, type of songs. He said, you have sure. it all yourself, and he immediately embraced him and produced him for you know from then till now, which is over twenty years later. So wow. finding your own lane is is not bad advice. Well, listen, Doug, I want to thank you. You've been a, a fascinating guest. I'm not an economist; that's obvious. Um, I think you're the second economist we've had on this program, mm-hmm. so uh, it's still pretty ground groundbreaking. Your book is uh, Hypernomics, and uh, where where can people find your book?
1: Uh, right now, if you were to type in Doug Howarth onto uh, Amazon, you'd see I'd pop up. I'd also pop up on Barnes & Noble okay. and on Wiley's site. I'm, I'm being published through Wiley. Wiley will have it there, too.
0: Right. Wiley, a very reputable business publisher. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Um, uh, best wishes, and uh, we wish you all the luck in the world with, with, with hypernomics and uh, going forward. So thanks so much for being with us.
1: Well, Michael, thank you so much for having me. You're, you've got a great show, and I was lucky to be a part of it. So thank you.
0: Well, you're, you're, uh, I'm, I'm going to just take that at face value.
1: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Please do.
0: And uh, I want to remind everyone out there to uh, subscribe. Go to conif.substack.com. Uh, find us on all the platforms. Like us. Share us. Tell your friends. And uh, remember, as I like to say at the end of each podcast, we'll be back with another podcast before you know it.